President Biden warns that refusing to accept next week's midterm election results could lead the country on a, quote, path to chaos. It's Thursday, November 3rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour in his speech last night, Biden singled out what he calls extreme MAGA Republicans. He's trying to succeed where they failed in 2020 to suppress the right of voters and subvert the electoral system itself. Also this hour, a deal to end Ethiopia's civil war and why crime statistics can be complicated. Plus, some students in Worcester say school bus service has improved after the district started running its own service. A lot better than last year, I will say that. Last year, the bus was late, like every day. I missed most of the first period half the time. Forecast says sunny, highs in the 60s today. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. President Biden is warning Americans about threats to democracy. In a speech last night, Biden cautioned there could be potential chaos in midterm election results with hundreds of candidates running who deny the results of the 2020 election. In a somber address delivered near the U.S. Capitol building, President Biden said democracy is on the ballot. This year, I hope you'll make the future of our democracy an important part of your decision to vote and how you vote. I hope you'll ask a simple question of each candidate you might vote for. Will that person accept the legitimate will of the American people, of the people voting in his district or her district? He called out former President Trump and said election lies and conspiracy theories have put election workers and elected officials at risk, generating a cycle of anger, hate, and even violence. Republican Party Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel said Biden's speech demonized and smeared Americans. Tamara Keith. NPR News. The Federal Reserve has ordered another big hike in interest rates. It's trying to curb stubbornly high inflation. But as NPR Scott Horsley reports, the central bank is hinting that future rate hikes may be smaller. This is the fourth time in a row the Federal Reserve has raised its benchmark interest rate by three-quarters of a percentage point. By making it more expensive to borrow money, the Fed hopes to tamp down demand and bring soaring prices under control. While future rate hikes may be smaller, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell cautioned interest rates will ultimately have to climb even higher to bring inflation back down to its 2% target. What I'm trying to do is make sure that our message is clear, which is that we think we have a ways to go. We have some ground to cover with interest rates before we get to um, that level of, of interest rates that we think is sufficiently restrictive. Stocks tumbled on the prospect of even higher interest rates, with the Dow Jones Industrial Average falling more than 500 points. Scott Horsley, NPR News. Washington. Leaders with the Allied Pilots Association have rejected a tentative contract with American Airlines. The union leaders are seeking more pay from American, although the tentative contract would have boosted wages by nearly 20 percent. Earlier this week, pilots from United Airlines also voted to reject a contract. And pilots at Delta Airlines have voted to authorize a strike. But no walkout is imminent. More steps are required before any strike at Delta can take place. The gunman who killed 17 people at a high school in Parkland, Florida, has received his sentence. Nicholas Cruz admitted to the 2018 mass shooting. A Florida jury did not impose the death penalty. Yesterday, Florida Judge Elizabeth Shearer issued his sentence. Mr. Cruz, you are remanded to the custody of the Department of Corrections to complete the mandatory life sentences imposed by the court. He will not have the possibility of parole. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Boston is not on track to meet its climate goals for either 2030 or 2050. A new report from the Boston Foundation looked at the city's progress on issues including greenhouse gas reductions, coastal resiliency, and environmental justice and equity. It identifies big transformations that need to happen at the city, state, and regional levels. More from WBUR's Miriam Wasser. It's not all bad news. In the 15 years before the pandemic, Boston reduced its carbon emissions by a whopping 21%. But that's not enough. Boston needs to make big changes. Luckily, Keith Mahoney of the Boston Foundation says the combination of strong local leadership, the new state climate law, and the billions of dollars of federal money coming to Massachusetts for climate action will help. While the headline may be, we're not on track to meet our goal, the subtext is, We have this great opportunity and actually some resources to accelerate our efforts towards those ambitious goals. The Boston Foundation will publish a follow-up in two years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. Teachers in South Hadley say they'll begin working to rule today. Their union failed to reach a deal with the district last night, despite contract talks going well into the evening. Working to rule means that educators will only work contractually obligated hours and won't come in early or stay late to do things like extra lesson planning or grading. The teachers say they want higher pay and better staffing. Admiral Rachel Levine, the highest-ranking U.S. official who is transgender, is in Massachusetts to speak with providers and trans youth who've become the target of attacks. Levine's the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services in the Biden administration. WBUR's Martha Biebinger reports. Levine says the White House is doing what it can to support transgender rights and clinicians who provide transgender care. But Levine says the backlash may get worse before it gets better. Gender affirmation treatment for youth is the tip of the spear of the culture wars. And it's egregious because it is putting at risk the physical and mental health of very vulnerable youth and and their families. Opponents of adolescent transgender care say there isn't enough research to prove that hormone therapy or surgery is wise, even though most major medical groups have endorsed treatment for trans youth. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger. The head of the public transit system for communities west of Boston hopes to get service back to pre-pandemic levels by next year. The Metro West Regional Transit Authority services 15 communities. Its administrator tells the Metro West Daily News that he wants to beef up popular routes and add evening and weekend service, but he says the transit agency will need to hire more drivers to do that, and hiring has been an issue. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. In sports, Celtics lost to the Cavaliers 114-113 to in overtime in Cleveland last night. The Seas will be back home to face the Chicago Bulls tomorrow. The Bruins skate with the Rangers in New York tonight. And our forecast looks good. Sunny temperatures in the mid-60s today. Tonight should be clear with lows in the 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow with highs in the 60s and sunshine staying with us into next week. Temperatures the next few days getting into the 70s. It's 49 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Little Passports, designed to help children discover the world with hands-on activity kits delivered monthly for ages 3 and up. Learn more at littlepassports.com slash NPR.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. In the final days of the midterm election season, President Biden is warning about the state of democracy. In a speech last night near the U.S. Capitol, Biden said there were about 300 candidates running this year who say that they do not accept the fact that Donald Trump lost the election in 2020. The president also talked about political violence. He referred to a man who broke into the home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi last week. The man attacked her husband, Paul Pelosi, and later told police he had a plan to send a message to Democrats. We don't settle our differences in America with a riot, a mob, or a bullet, or a hammer. We settle them peaceably at the ballot box. NPR political reporter Deepa Shivaram joins us to talk through all these things. Good morning, Deepa. Good morning. So the White House had billed this speech by the president as an address on democracy. It was interesting to me that that of all the places he could have chose to begin, he started the address by recounting that attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. Yeah, that is how the president started off his speech, and he didn't shy away from going into the details. He talked about how this man who broke into Nancy Pelosi's home and attacked her husband with a hammer was asking, where's Nancy? And he compared it to the January 6th insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol in 2021 and asked the same question. Biden talked about how there's been a rise in political violence against Democrats and Republicans and nonpartisan election workers in the aftermath of the 2020 election, and it's put democracy in a really fragile state. We must, with one overwhelming, unified voice, speak as a country and say there's no place, no place for voter intimidation or political violence in America, whether it's directed at Democrats or Republicans. No place, period. No place ever. Biden said that he knows there are worries over the economy and health care, but that the state of democracy is really fragile right now. And it's also at stake in this election. So there's less than a week of voting before voting wraps up. Millions of Americans have already done so. Uh, so if he was trying to gin up support from his base, was this a little late in the game? Yeah, that's a fair question. You know, Biden made it clear in his speech that he was trying to reach all Americans. But you have to keep in mind that this was a political speech. It was an event with the Democratic National Committee, not an address from the White House or on Capitol Hill, though the location was near the U.S. Capitol. And with voting ending on Tuesday, there's definitely a push needed from Democrats to try and motivate some of their voters who haven't been engaged yet with the election or were not planning to get engaged. A number of polls show that voters are concerned about inflation and but there is also a high concern among Democratic voters about the state of democracy, especially when it comes to protecting the right to vote. But the level of enthusiasm among Democratic voters is far below their Republican counterparts. And according to an NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll that we released yesterday, that came up. And in this final push towards Tuesday, Democrats need to ramp up their base, especially in these states where some of these election deniers are running for office, like Nevada, Arizona, and Wisconsin. So President Biden gave this address near the U.S. Capitol, of course, the site of the January 6th insurrection. Did Biden go so far as to bring up the name of former President Trump in his remarks? So he didn't mention Trump by name, but he did say that the former president and his big lie have fueled more election deniers, like he mentioned, the hundreds who are running for office this year. American democracy is under attack because the defeated former president of the United States refuses to accept the results of the 2020 election. He refuses to accept the will of the people. 
He refuses to accept the fact that he lost. And Biden went beyond Trump, too. He said that these MAGA Republicans have emboldened violence and intimidation of voters and election officials. He called it corrosive and destructive. And he did say that he thinks these Republicans are the minority of the party, but he said they were a driving force, and he called them loud and determined. Deepa Shivaram, thank you so much for your reporting. Thank you. So Democrats rank democracy itself as the preeminent issue this year, but they know that many voters expect democracy to deliver things for them. Representative Hakeem Jeffries asserts that Republicans have nothing to offer. He says that is the reason they've worked so hard for years to demonize Nancy Pelosi. They have no concrete vision for the future other than doing what they always do, which is to cut taxes for the wealthy, the well-off, and the well-connected, and everybody else gets screwed. We call Jeffries to hear Democrats' closing argument as Americans vote. His location suggested how hard an election it can be for Democrats. He was helping to defend congressional seats in a blue state, Oregon. His party has been hoping to run on achievements like infrastructure spending and gun safety. They also run as supporters of abortion rights. But these concerns compete for attention with inflation, as we've been hearing from voters like those who spoke with NPR in Georgia. We never run out of milk, right? We always keep milk in the refrigerator. And it just seems like it just keeps getting higher and higher and higher. Our 401ks are down by 25 to 35%. There's, you know, one party controlling what's going on politically. You have to assign that to somebody. So we asked Jeffries about it. We had a once in a century public health crisis uh, that caused the economy to have to shut down. We worked hard to bring it back in a way that allowed for everyday Americans uh, to regain their jobs, uh, to remain in their homes, and to see a pathway back to pursuing uh, the American dream in the mo most robust fashion possible. Uh, we have more work to do, uh, and our track record of accomplishment uh, is one that I cite not simply uh, to say reward us, uh, but to say trust us. I guess we should be fair here and note that inflation has been global and a lot of the work of dealing with inflation falls to the Federal Reserve and still people expect something of the leaders that they elect. So what is something concrete you can do in the coming year if you have the majority? I expect that we will be in the majority, that all of us come together uh, to put back into place the child tax credit, uh, which resulted in providing additional support uh, for the expenses that the American people confront in a way that benefits working families, middle-class families, and low-income families. That's something that can be done. It's also important uh, for us to deal with the high cost of childcare and make childcare more accessible and affordable for everyday Americans. And I think it's also critical uh, that we address the housing crisis that exists. Uh, we have a plan uh, that would at minimum invest $150 billion in the creation and preservation of affordable housing. You would certainly be addressing things that bother people in their day-to-day -day lives, the price of housing, uh, the price of raising kids, the price of daycare. But if you subsidize those areas and you don't do it very carefully, don't those tend to be inflationary things to do? I think what the American people want us to do is to make sure that in their day-to-day -day lives, 
we are addressing the rising costs that they are confronting. We should pause to say the causes of inflation are complicated. A Federal Reserve study in 2016 found federal spending had little effect on inflation. An economic stimulus package in 2021 was so huge that it did provoke warnings that it would worsen inflation. This year, Democrats passed a mix of taxes, climate and energy measures, which they labeled the Inflation Reduction Act, although congressional analysts found its inflation effects would be limited. Jeffrey says he wants to keep trying and that the other party has nothing better. My Republican colleagues are too busy talking about things without proposing any real plan to address the concerns of everyday Americans. Extreme MAGA Republicans want to impose a nationwide ban on abortion and criminalize uh, reproductive freedom. Uh, they actually want to take away Social Security and Medicare after five years. Uh, and they also apparently don't really believe in democracy anymore. Let's talk about a couple of those things. When you talked about Social Security and Medicare, of course, uh, Senator Rick Scott of Florida has put out a proposal to sunset those laws and reconsider them, in effect, in some way. People rely on Medicare. We have to have Medicare. But I also believe that we ought to start telling people how we're going to fix it, because we know we know that it's not being fully funded. The same thing with Social Security. Rick Scott was speaking on this program earlier this year. Many Republicans disowned Scott's plan, although others have talked about changes to retirement programs. Jeffries contends Democrats will preserve many benefits, although we left open for now the question of how to pay for them. Are you going to fund some of those priorities that you mentioned, which would mean, I guess, higher taxes on someone as opposed to borrowing money? Well, we have continued to uh, actually fund every single thing that we've done. Jeffries insists his party will also support voting rights. And if Democrats should keep their majority, they would retain the power to continue investigations of Donald Trump's bid to stay in office after his 2020 election defeat. Democracy is just not an esoteric thing. Uh, it is good for freedom. It is good for a thriving economy. One other thing, Representative Jeffries, do you sense that Democratic voters are ready for new leaders? I think Democratic voters want us to continue to get the job done in Washington, D.C., to continue to put people over politics, continue to fight for lower costs, better paying jobs and safer communities. And that's exactly what we will do. Um, I guess I should make explicit the reason I asked that. The president is going to be 80. The Speaker of the House is 82. Her top deputies are also in their 80s. Um, do you think that there are Democratic voters who might be looking for someone from a different generation? I think Democratic voters understand that every single thing that we care about right now is on the ballot. Reproductive freedom is on the ballot. Health care is on the ballot. Social Security and Medicare on the ballot. Voting rights on the ballot. And certainly democracy itself is on the ballot. And the voters that I've encountered traveling throughout the country all want to make sure that we hold the House, hold the Senate, and can continue America's march toward a more perfect union. Representative Hakeem Jeffries of New York, it's a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much. Great to talk to you. Thank you. That's a closing argument from Democrats as Election Day nears. We expect to hear from Republican Senator Rick Scott tomorrow. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, ahead of the midterm elections and campaign platforms on crime, we take a look at the complicated world of crime statistics. It's 19 minutes past 7. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College with over 70 part-time graduate programs in high-growth areas such as analytics, global marketing management, health informatics, financial management, and software development. Graduate admissions information session Tuesday, November 15th. More at bu.edu slash met slash events. I'm Deepa Fernandez. Five states have slavery on the ballot this November. While the 13th Amendment was said to have ended slavery in the US, it allowed for involuntary servitude for criminals. Now ballot questions are seeking to prohibit prisoners from being compelled to work for no pay. That's next time on Here and Now. Today at noon on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our forecast, sunshine today, temperatures in the 60s. Tonight should be clear with lows in the 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, highs in the upper 60s, and sunshine stays with us into early next week. 48 degrees right now in Boston. For NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from Focus Features, presenting Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins, one family's pursuit of the American dream. From writer-director James Gray, Everywhere Friday. And from Paychex, the Paychex team of professionals and compliance specialists work to help businesses automate all HR functions into one platform so that they can instead focus on their business and their employees. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Talk with voters this fall, and it won't take long for someone to mention crime. It is a problem that people feel. Republicans and their media have played up the threat of crime during this election season, but what do the numbers really show? NPR's Sandia Dirks reports. Is crime really rising? Turns out that question is incredibly complicated. So's the answer. Take the FBI crime statistics for 2021. At first glance, up on homicides, down on property crimes, similar to 2020. But because of a long-planned change in reporting standards, most cities didn't report their 2021 crime numbers to the FBI, says Fordham Law Professor John Pfaff. It's turned our crime data into just sort of a, a giant black hole. The stories we tell about crime are filled with holes, rife with misinformation, Pfaff says, even when we have more complete data. The other thing, big mistake we make with crime narratives is the effort to tell a narrative. Right? Crime is deeply local. While it sometimes feels like crime is rising everywhere, that's just not how it works. And it's important to take the long view. Property crime is near historic lows. There was a significant spike in homicides in 2020, but it's still nothing like back in the 90s. There's another really important question. What do we even mean by crime? We generally talk about crime is up or crime is down. It's referring to sort of this small core set of what the FBI calls index one crimes. That's murder, robbery, rape, aggravated assault, larceny, burglary, and auto theft. Sometimes arson, sometimes not. Pfaff says, look, many of these are serious, significant crimes. But that list was chosen by a group of police chiefs almost 100 years ago, and it hasn't changed since. I don't think crime data actually tells you all that much. 
That's University of Chicago sociologist Robert Vargas. He says the way crime is defined is biased from the start. I mean, it tells you how police behave as an organization. Someone shoplifting tampons or diapers from a pharmacy counts as a crime. But a corporation stealing millions of their workers' wages doesn't. Tax evasion doesn't. Big companies committing environmental crimes? Nope. Because those aren't investigated by traditional police. In our system, perpetrators of what we call crime are more likely to be poor people. Not because poor people commit more crimes or hurt more people. They don't. But because that's how crime is defined. It's not just which crimes count and which don't, Vargas says. It's also who police target. They're going after people selling drugs, uh, people committing traffic violations, oftentimes in poor neighborhoods, poor black and brown neighborhoods and not other neighborhoods. Black and brown people are policed and arrested at much higher levels than white people, says Rena Karifa Johnson with the advocacy group Forward U.S. If you are a young black kid who goes to school in a big city where there are police at your school, if you get in a physical fight with another student, that is often seen as a crime. But if you're a white kid at a more affluent or private school where there aren't police and you get into a fight... It's not something that we see thought about as a crime. So when we turn on the nightly news, we're hearing a very slanted story about crime, says Alec Karakatanis, a civil rights lawyer and activist. When people talk about a crime wave, they're basing that on a very distorted set of data that the police themselves are manipulating and curating for their own political reasons. Take Wisconsin, where the Fraternal Order of Police, among other law enforcement agencies, have endorsed Republican Senator Ron Johnson for re-election. Johnson is running as tough on crime, but he's also called the criminal January 6th attack on the Capitol a peaceful protest by people who love this country. He has said he would have been concerned had they been Black Lives Matter protesters instead. Republicans are pushing the narrative of a crime wave in ads like this one, falsely attacking Johnson's opponent, Mandela Barnes. Even with shootings, robberies, carjackings, violent attacks on our police, more than 300 murders last year alone. Yet Barnes has even supported defunding the police. Barnes is black, like all of the alleged criminals depicted in the ad. There's huge amounts of money and private interests behind these ads. That's Inche Rahman with the Vera Institute. And they have real impact on what happens in our elections. Hakman says people confuse crime with not feeling safe. Worry about crime is often a code for white racial anxiety. Rahman says Republicans continue to be seen by many voters as better on crime, even when people know their tough-on-crime solutions have repeatedly proven unsuccessful. But when it's the only option on offer, it's what people go to because in the absence of a proactive, affirmative vision for safety, you pick the thing that you know, even if you know it doesn't really work. Democrats, she says, have failed to give any alternative for what safety could look like. Take the defund the police accusation, like the one against Mandela Barnes. Most Democrats respond by saying, No, no, I want to fund the police more. I support the police. At least from the polling, that's not a very effective tactic. But that's the only response that we are seeing to those attacks. This messaging around crime, it scares people, but it doesn't really offer solutions, says Rena Karifa Johnson, because it isn't meant for the people most impacted by the crime that is rising, homicide. 
the communities that are most uniquely harmed by gun violence are also the communities that are most uniquely harmed by long sentences, by pretrial detention, by draconian approaches to criminal justice reform. She says these crime wave narratives are part of a historical pattern. After racial and social justice protests comes a backlash. Here's civil rights lawyer Alec Karakatanis. It's very important for powerful people, especially in moments of uprising and moments of social unrest, to attempt to create a moral panic around crime. Moral panics are a way of pushing back against change or reform, a way of preserving the status quo. But this time, it isn't about keeping things the way they've been, Karakatana says, because while the Republican Party is running on a moral panic about crime, they're also openly anti-democratic. The reactionary backlash against the protests of 2020 is coming at a time when this country is hurtling fast toward fascist and authoritarian life. And in response, both Republicans and Democrats are calling for more police. So Karakatana says the question isn't, is crime really rising? Instead, we should be asking, what really makes us safe? I'm Sandhya Dirks, NPR News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, it appears there is a ceasefire agreement in Ethiopia's two-year-long civil war. You want to stay updated on upcoming WBUR events at City Space and throughout Greater Boston and get first crack at tickets? Well, sign up for the WBUR events newsletter. Go to WBUR.org slash newsletters. It's 730. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with The Marriage of Figaro, Mozart's greatest comedy, November 17th and 18th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. And Farmers to You, an online Vermont farmer's market who believes that you can only trust your food when you know your farmers. Farmerstoyou.com slash WBUR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. President Biden says the rise in political violence in the U.S. is among the threats to democracy, and he's calling on voters in the congressional midterm elections to remember that. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports on the president's speech last night in Washington. He talked about how this man who broke into Nancy Pelosi's home and attacked her husband with a hammer was asking, where's Nancy? And he compared it to the January 6th insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol in 2021 and asked the same question. The president also urged voters to reject candidates who deny the results of the 2020 presidential race. Former President Barack Obama was in Arizona last night, delivering much the same message as President Biden. You've got election deniers serving as your governor, as your senator, as your secretary of state, as your attorney general, then democracy as we know it may not survive in Arizona. That's not an exaggeration. That is a fact. Obama was speaking at a high school in Phoenix as he continues his appearances for Democratic candidates. Auto loans and credit cards will become more expensive now that the Federal Reserve has announced another hike in interest rates. The Fed is raising rates by three-quarters of a point for the fourth consecutive time to try to bring down inflation. 
This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Vice President Kamala Harris stumped for Democrats running for statewide office in Massachusetts when she appeared at a jam-packed campaign rally in Roxbury yesterday. Massachusetts is one of the few states where Democrats are expected to fare well in next week's midterms. And the rally here followed the vice president's visit to the Sheet Metal Workers Union Hall in Dorchester. WBUR Steve Brown reports. Harris spoke briefly to tout provisions of the just-passed Inflation Reduction Act. She said investments from the act will create jobs and help combat climate change. By helping families pay the upfront cost for energy efficiency upgrades to their homes, we are also lowering energy bills, bringing down household costs, creating jobs, and fighting the climate crisis. Harris also said the federal government is providing $300 million to Massachusetts to help families pay to upgrade their homes and to lower their monthly energy bills. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. A new political map for the city of Boston is now waiting for Mayor Michelle Wu's approval. The city council okayed the redistricting map by a 9-4 to vote yesterday after weeks of bitter negotiations. Council President Ed Flynn was one of the no votes. He says he's concerned that a cluster of South Boston housing projects is being shifted out of his district. One thing we don't do is turn our back on residents. And I'm disappointed in the results today. But it's not going to stop me from advocating for my neighbors in South Boston because I'm proud to represent them. Those residents will be moved into a district represented by Councillor Frank Baker. Baker also voted against the new map. Religious groups in Massachusetts are getting funds from the state to help improve security and protect against hate-fueled attacks. The Baker administration says it's granting more than $4 million to nonprofit faith-based organizations. A majority of those are Jewish groups. The Anti-Defamation League says anti-Semitic incidents in New England rose 42% last year. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. In sports, Celtics rallied last night to send their game to overtime, but they did lose in the extra period. They fell to the Cavaliers 114-113 to in Cleveland. The Seas will be at the Garden tomorrow to play the Chicago Bulls. Tonight, the Bruins face the Rangers in New York. Our weather forecast, sunny today, highs in the mid-60s. Tonight should be clear, lows in the 40s, mostly sunny tomorrow with temperatures in the upper 60s and sunshine right through Monday, temperatures the next few days in the 70s. Right now, 49 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at nervivehealth.com. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. The violent break-in at the home of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is renewing calls to increase security for members of Congress and those close to them. Prosecutors say the attack on Pelosi's husband, Paul, was politically motivated. 
Now Democrats and Republicans are worried that crimes like that may happen more often. NPR politics reporter Jimena Bustillo joins us now. Jimena, this attack has got to be hitting pretty close to home for lawmakers. What are they saying? Mm -hmm. I spoke to a few lawmakers and they told me that the incident has made them reflect on their own experiences. Earlier this year, a man was arrested for stalking Representative Pramila Jayapal of Washington and yelling threats outside her home. Here she is talking about how this also impacts staff. I think it's one thing to talk about, you know, our safety and security, which is definitely important. I also raised the question earlier this summer about our staff, and particularly staff in the district offices that um, just don't have the same kind of protection. Like Pelosi, Jayapal had police presence outside her home, but only when she was there. On Wednesday, U.S. Capitol Police confirmed that they have cameras outside the speaker's home in San Francisco, but they're not actively monitored. Mm -hmm. The attack comes at a time of heightened political tension, right? Lawmakers like Democrat Eric Solwell say that they use campaign funds to protect their family and staff. And, and I've heard from donors who have told me, look, like we want the money to go to reelecting you. you know, and I've told them, well, you know, if I'm dead, I'm not on the ballot and then I'm not going to get reelected. Swalwell faced threats earlier this year, too. A man recently pleaded guilty to threatening to kill him and his staff. Hmm. Wow. So besides directing campaign funds at their own private security, which they feel necessary, at least Swalwell does, what solutions are lawmakers putting forward? Well, Jayapal told me she's pushing for some solutions like the ability for members to scrub their private home addresses from public records. Swalwell says he sees the upcoming lame duck session after the election as a potential opportunity to pass legislation that could increase funding and resources to Capitol Police or other measures like the scrubbing of addresses. He argues that there's room for bipartisan support because Democrats are not the only ones targeted. I mean, if you look at the, you know, Gabby Giffords uh, shooting, you know, it was also people around the congressman, uh, the congresswoman who were you know, affected by it. And, and so we all have an interest. That is a reference to former Arizona Representative Giffords, who was shot during a constituent meeting held in a supermarket parking lot in 2011. But there are more recent examples, too. Earlier this year, GOP Representative Lee Zeldin, who's running to be New York governor, was attacked by a man at a campaign event in upstate New York. So what do Republicans have to say about the kind of proposals you just laid out that are being offered by Democrats? Many Republicans, despite their disagreements with the speaker, are wishing her husband well in his recovery. Senator Rand Paul is one of those lawmakers, and he has been pushing to protect the address of members of Congress, too. You'll recall the Kentucky senator was attacked on his property by a neighbor in 2017. And he told me in a statement that he hopes the most recent attack will lead to bipartisan support for the measure. He's specifically been trying to get lawmakers to include a bill that protects federal judges' privacy. That bill was added to the defense policy legislation that's expected to pass later this year. Earlier this week, U.S. Capitol Police Chief Tom Manger called for more resources to provide additional security to members. And some GOP members might agree. Representative Mike Simpson of Idaho told NPR in a statement that he has always advocated that they should have resources that they need to be safe while doing their job. NPR's Jimena Bustillo, thank you so much. Thank you. Ethiopia's government has agreed to a ceasefire with leaders of a rebellious region. 
The Tigray region has been embroiled in fighting against the central government for the past two years. There's a humanitarian catastrophe there. The war has displaced millions of people in northern Ethiopia. Tens of thousands of civilians have been killed. The fighting has temporarily come to a halt after peace talks mediated by a former president of Nigeria, Olushugu Obasanjo. This moment is not the end of peace process, but the beginning of it. Implementation of the peace agreement signed today is critical to the success of the process. We're joined now by Fred Harder, who is a Sunday Times journalist based in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, is this a peace deal or merely a halt in the fighting for a moment? So this is the announcement of a formal cessation of hostilities. The parties have agreed in the short, immediate term to stop shooting each other, but they've also agreed to longer-term issues such as restoring aid access to Tigray and also restoring phone and internet services to Tigray, which have mostly been down since the conflict started two years ago. So as Obasanjo emphasised, this is the start of a longer peace process and there's lots of thorny political issues that have not been touched upon in the deal and will need to be agreed at a later date. So this is the start of a longer peace process. I should mention there is this underlying dispute between the prime minister and the leaders of this region, members of a party that he was once a member of. It doesn't sound like their underlying disagreement has been addressed at all yet. No, what was at stake was basically a power struggle at the centre of government. Abiy came in, the current prime minister came in in 2018, and he was trying to stamp his own mark of authority on the country. He wanted to centralise power, well, that's what his critics would say. And the Tigray region and him really fell out when the COVID-19 pandemic suspended elections and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, Tigray's ruling party, went ahead of elections, leading to the federal government to suspend aid to the region. And that's what eventually led to the conflict breaking out two years ago. So as they begin those talks, what shape is the country in? Well, the country's very divided. There's been a lot of damage to infrastructure. When I was there, there was hospitals that had been completely um, destroyed by both sides, schools that were emptied, and you have a lot of people living in IDP camps across the country, some of them in very uh, hard conditions. There must be people who are in desperate need of immediate help. Yes, um, millions of people have been displaced and many more also needing aids. The UN says that of Tigray's 6 million population, about 5.2 million are in need of urgent uh, humanitarian assistance. There have been reports of starvation-related deaths in Tigray. And I was recently shared a document by a humanitarian agency from Friday last week, which said that roughly a third of children that were screened for malnourishment and three quarters of lactating mothers were malnourished. So there's a large need to get AIDS into the region very quickly. Fred Harder of the Sunday Times in Ethiopia, thanks so much. Thank you. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, some students in Worcester say school bus service improved after the district started running its own service. 
Our weather forecast is calling for sunshine today with highs in the 60s. Clear skies tonight. Lows going down into the 40s and mostly sunny tomorrow. Temperatures in the upper 60s. In business news, Cambridge-based Vaxess is wrapping up its first trial of a flu vaccine that's administered without a needle. Instead of getting a shot, patients wear a patch that allows the vaccine to absorb into their skin. Michael Schrader is CEO and co-founder of Vaxess, and he says his team wanted to create a vaccine that could be administered at home. From my perspective, if you just look at the way the world is going right now, I think this is going to be hopefully kind of the missing piece of the puzzle that truly makes you know, home health care reality for the future. If results from the clinical trial are promising, Schrader hopes the vaccine patch will be available by 2028. Jay Peak Ski Resort in Vermont is under new ownership. Utah-based Pacific Group Resort says it officially closed the $76 million deal yesterday. The company also owns Ragged Mountain in New Hampshire. Jay Peak went up for auction after its former owner and former president were sentenced to prison on financial fraud charges. The time is 7.45. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Cambridge Trust a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. You're listening to Morning Edition on 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. In many Massachusetts school districts, late school buses are frustrating parents, students, and school leaders. Local officials say part of the problem is that there are fewer bus companies offering school transportation. In the second part of our series, WBUR's Carrie Young takes us inside the Worcester Public School District, which recently took matters into its own hands. It's 6 a.m. on a recent Tuesday morning as a silent parade of sleepy teenagers board a school bus bound for Worcester Technical High School. Bus driver Jason Crew, however, is alert and ready to start his hour-long route. It's going to take a little while. We're going to head all the way up near the airport to start picking kids up. Crew is driving a brand new bus. It's part of the new fleet the district purchased when it dropped its school bus contractor over the summer after years of delayed drop-offs and communication issues. To the average person, this vehicle looks like a typical school bus, just with an extra shine. But for a longtime bus driver like Crew, the new safety features are pretty cool. This up here reads all the speed limit signs, all the lines in the roads. If you cross us all the line, this starts buzzing. Ninth grade Worcester Tech student Phoenix Johnson says she hasn't noticed the electronics, but she has noticed that the bus is more timely this year. What has the bus riding been like this year? A lot better than last year, I will say that. Um, last year the bus was late, like every day. I missed most of the first period half the time. This year, Johnson is regularly at school before the morning bell. 10th grader Simon Restrepo appreciates that too. He says being on time has improved his grades in first period. It's been a very big improvement since years prior, and I really, really like it. Shifting gears from outsourcing its transportation to running its own fleet was a huge project for Worcester. First, it had to buy about 165 new buses. It also had to hire a lot of new drivers and find space to store and maintain all of the new vehicles. 
Worcester joins just a handful of other districts in the state, like Brockton, that have taken control of their own bus operations in recent years. But it didn't happen overnight. The effort in Worcester started about seven years back, when the district started getting fed up with unanswered phone calls and late buses from its contractor, Durham School Services. Here's school committee member Tracy Novick. Everything from, you know, not telling us when they had didn't have enough bus drivers, you know, they wouldn't have enough people staffing phones, they wouldn't answer the phone. WBUR reached out to Durham School Services several times but didn't get a response. The Worcester School District paid for their new buses with federal COVID relief funding. As for the operations, school leaders say doing transportation in-house will save about $3.5 million this year, money that's going toward boosting bus driver salaries. The current rate in Worcester is $30 an hour, $6 higher than before. Jason Crew, the bus driver, says he appreciates the higher pay, but the biggest improvement he sees is that there's no more finger pointing between the district and the contractor when something goes wrong. Now it's it's all it's all city. The questions have to be answered here. Yeah. You know, for the parents and whatnot. Total difference here, total upgrade to what it was in the past. Many people in the school community say they're happy that morning pickup is much more timely this year. Afternoon pickup, however, still needs some work. Again, Worcester Tech sophomore Simon Restrepo. It's been late every day, but I know that administrators are working on that and to improve the scheduling and the routes. Deputy Superintendent Brian Allen knows there are still problems that need to be ironed out. But he says he's been sharing the lessons he's learned with other districts that are interested in running their own buses, too. I don't think every district can do it themselves because of their size or because of, you know, the hurdles that they may need to overcome. But I think there are some communities that are looking with great interest that will be exploring this. He says so far, the group that's interested is pretty small. But if the momentum continues, Allen can see the move becoming a trend. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, a new poetry collection by Franny Choi exploring how life continues even after catastrophic events. And later today here on WBUR, it's Radio Boston with Tiziana Deering. And she is with me in the studio right now to tell us what's coming up on today's program. Good morning. Good morning, Deb. How are you? Okay, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. So let me ask you, have you turned your heat on in your house? Yeah, we have too, just recently. cold. Yes, this morning it was. So I hear the heat kick in this morning and I think oh my god what is that bill going to be this month big yes exactly Mm. and we're going to talk about that and actually two WBUR reporters um, Yasmin Ammer who works on business uh, Miriam Wasser who works on the environment are going to come in and join us and we're going to break this down right why is it going to be so big Mm. what can we do about it what are new programs from the state government the federal government how realistic is short-term you know winterizing so that you can drive down your costs etc so um, we're going to dive deeply into that and figure out if there's any way to stave off some of the pain for the average resident. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Tiziana. You're welcome, Deb. That's Radio Boston at 11 and 3 p.m. today here on WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. 
and from BetterHelp, connecting people with a therapist online for issues like depression and relationships. 25,000 therapists are available through BetterHelp using a computer or smartphone. BetterHelp.com slash public. 435 House seats. Our democracy is in peril. 35 Senate seats. This is what's at stake. 36 governorships. Thank you, Michigan. Countless local positions. There's a lot at stake in the midterm elections this fall, and NPR News will be there, keeping you informed every step of the way. Stay up to date. Keep listening to this station for the midterm updates you need from NPR News. Follow the election every day on 90.9 WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Layla Falded. In her latest collection of poetry, Franny Choi draws on her family's history. Her parents immigrated to the United States from Seoul, South Korea, just a few months before she was born. In my family history is all of the painful parts of modern Korean history from colonization by the Japanese Empire to war and that devastating war that decimated the peninsula and also the division of the Koreas. Her book is called The World Keeps Ending and the World Goes On, which also happens to be the title of one of the poems in her collection. She says she wrote the poems to cope with the state of the world, each one a reminder of other moments in the past that were apocalyptic, just not for everyone. My partner's Black, and I'm Korean, and in both of our family lineages are these enormous calamities in which our ancestors survived what seemed utterly unsurvivable. You know, what is more dystopian than the transatlantic slave trade? And, you know, what is more dystopian than the dropping of atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which effectively ended with, you know, was the, the beginning of the end of, of Japanese colonial rule. And so remembering that the apocalypses, the kind of like world ending calamities that sort of like seem always on the horizon and like threatening to to take over are actually in some ways are those things that we had to survive in order to even get here. Maybe it's a little morbid that that was comforting to me, but it was. Yeah. Right. I was like, oh, how comforting. Yeah, know, Nuclear bombs and the transit. But I see what you mean. Like we are living these Every day, you and I might not be living them right now, but somebody in this world is living it right now and has lived it. Yeah. And I remember around that time reading an essay by the writer Rebecca Solnit, who said, it's actually easy to imagine the end of the world. What's hard is imagining that a world might actually go on after that that terrible, unsurvivable thing, that some version of the world might continue. Um, and so I, you know, I've never been one to turn down the hard homework. So um, I said, okay, I'll, I'll, I will try. I will do my best. Did you find comfort in revisiting the terribleness of what humanity has done in history? <laughs> what an amazing question. Um, I'm I'm laughing because the answer is yes. To know that my being here is dependent on someone having made a life out of an impossible situation makes me feel like, one, I too can survive, you know, the things that, that are thrown at me. Mm-hmm. But but also that this is just this is part of what it means to be alive. Brandy, could you read an excerpt from The World Keeps Ending and The World Goes On? 
The world keeps ending and the world goes on. The apocalypse began when Columbus praised God and lowered his anchor. It began when a continent was drawn into cutlets. It began when Kublai Khan told Marco, begin at the beginning. By the time the apocalypse began, the world had already ended. It ended every day for a century or two. It ended and another ending world spun in its place. So both there is like a doomed sense in it, but also this idea that something will always live. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I think that so often what we think of as the end of the world is actually just an end of a world that we know, which, you know, uh, something that closes and then makes room for the next thing, which might be more terrible or less terrible. But I think that the, the, what I find comfort in is, is the not knowing. You explore a lot of dark themes in, in human history and, and current events, right? You talk about this is what you're watching in the world you live in um, and in the world of those who came before you. And then you end the collection with protest poem. And there is where I feel like there's kind of a call to action here. Like after all that we've learned and all that we've read about the world ending and beginning and ending and beginning, you write nothing cuts through walls like rage and its promises, no pieces of drill, joy you have to charge to make work. So this poem felt different mm -hmm. to me. Can you talk about choosing mm -hmm. to end the collection on this and in writing this poem? Yeah, sure. I mean... First of all, I think it's a little bit of a joke to myself to end this collection on a on a poem that's called Protest Poem. Um, <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that the idea of of protest poetry um, is yeah, every everybody sort of has like a, a a set of ideas about about what does and doesn't count as as protest poetry. Um, throughout the book, I'm sort of asking like, is that what I'm doing? Like, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, I mean, like, yes, but but what does that mean? This is a poem that I really, I, I wrote while sitting in my apartment in, at the time in Northampton, Massachusetts. This was 2020. It was the summer and George Floyd had, had been murdered maybe a few weeks before. And the protests in our city were kind of like rocking the house. You know, the walls were shaking from the noise outside. And it is a physical experience to be in that moment of intense protest. And that was what I felt. Like, I couldn't even exactly hear the words of the chants that were being shouted. I, I could just feel the walls shaking, hear the cheer that, that followed each time a chant was repeated, and then feel the emotions of my body, every one of which were saying, something must be done, something has to change, that this grief and this rage have to go somewhere. And that was enough, you know? Just the sounds and the feelings were enough, which is, I think, like, both beautiful and a little troubling as somebody whose work is words, you know, that, that the words in some ways don't even really matter. And so I think that I was ending the collection saying, okay, like all of this, all of these words, you know, this is, this is what I've been able to do. And then if you're going to take something from it, it would be wonderful if you took some of the language. It would be wonderful if you took some of the ideas. But if, if there's one thing you take away, I hope that it's this feeling of going through grief and rage and then getting to experience for the span of, of one book what something better might feel like. Franny Choi, her new book is called The World Keeps Ending and the world goes on. Franny, thank you so much. Thank you, Layla. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage acoustic and electric guitars, because every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. You're listening to 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUA-Brewster, streaming at WBUR.org, and when you ask your smart speaker to play WBUR, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. With less than a week until the midterms, President Biden is asking voters to save American democracy and fight political violence. It's Thursday, November 3rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the latest on the increasing tensions between North and South Korea. Also, with abortion rights on the ballot in Michigan, we visit a clinic there where women tell their stories, including this woman, who's already a mother and now pregnant with twins. If I had to have these babies with an abusive person, already take care of his child on my own, and then do two more. That's insanity to me. I feel like a prisoner. Plus, some U.S. high schools launch programs to help students earn their commercial driver's licenses to try to recruit more truck drivers. In our forecast, sunshine today, highs in the 60s and sunny all weekend long. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. The White House says it's closely monitoring the tone of political rhetoric ahead of next week's midterm elections. NPR's Windsor Johnston reports the brutal attack on the husband of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has sparked partisan finger-pointing and condemnation from Democrats. While Republicans have condemned the violent attack on Paul Pelosi, some have used the assault as a punchline. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says there are far more Americans who reject the dangerous path of political violence than accept it. We see this in polling. We see that majority of Americans uh, do not do, do want, want to protect our democracy uh, and do not, do not agree with the political violence, do not agree with the ra- rise of rhetoric that we are seeing. The White House says it's also seeing an alarming number of Republican officials who have said that they will not accept the results of the upcoming midterms. And that's a problem. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. President Biden also gave a speech last night about threats to democracy. He called out former President Donald Trump and his lies about the 2020 election. The head of the Republican Party says Biden smeared all Americans with his remarks. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. says the U.S. will work to remove Iran from the U.N.'s Commission on Women's Rights. This comes after the death of a young Iranian woman in police custody. She had been detained for wearing her headscarf improperly. Linda Fasulo reports her death has triggered protests in Iran, many led by women. U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield said that Iran's membership on the 45-member U.N. Commission on the Status of Women is an ugly stain on the body's credibility, citing Iran's, quote, systematic oppression of women. And she said the body cannot do its work when it is being undermined from within. She also urged the international community to provide moral support to Iranian demonstrators. Meanwhile, Iran's U.N. ambassador denied that Tehran was violating the rights of protesters, and said the U.N. meeting was an interference in the domestic affairs of his country. The U.N. estimates several hundred protesters have been killed and thousands arrested. For NPR News, I'm Linda Fasulo in New York. 
The gunman who admitted killing 17 people at a high school in Parkland, Florida, formally got his life sentence yesterday. People who survived the shooting in 2018 and relatives of those who were murdered had an opportunity to speak to the gunman directly. That included Lori Alhadef, who lost her daughter Alyssa in the shooting. My hope is for you is that you are miserable for the rest of your pathetic life. The gunman does not have the possibility of parole. Dow futures are lower today after falling more than 500 points yesterday. That came after the Federal Reserve increased interest rates by three-quarters of 1%. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Two local organizations have filed a lawsuit against the Environmental Protection Agency over pollution in the Charles Mystic and Neponset Rivers. They say the EPA has failed to act quickly enough in regulating private businesses to reduce their stormwater runoff. WBUR's Paolo Mora has more. The Charles River Watershed Association and the Conservation Law Foundation want the EPA to begin reinforcing its rule regulating stormwater runoff from private properties. The rule targets runoff from parking lots, shopping malls, and universities that flows into rivers. Jen Ryan, Deputy Director of Advocacy for the Charles River Watershed Association, said they have been pushing for regulations for years. Every year the river is more and more polluted. And we can't wait for the EPA to drag its feet any further. Stormwater runoff carrying nutrients, dog feces, and gasoline is the leading cause of pollution in local rivers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Paula Moda. The EPA has not responded to our request for comment. The city of Boston is not on track to meet its climate goals for 2030 and 2050. A report from the nonprofit Boston Foundation shows the city reduced its emissions by more than 20 percent in the 15 years before the pandemic, but says Boston needs to make bigger changes to stay on track. The group says federal funds and strong local leadership will help the city make progress. Leaders of the state's largest hospital systems and health insurers say they are working to manage health care spending, but in testimony before the state's Health Policy Commission yesterday, they jousted about how to best control costs. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal McCluskey reports. Mass General Brigham President Ann Klebanski told the panel health care is in crisis with too many sick patients and not enough staff. We're actually at a breaking point and patient care is at the risk of being compromised. And I never thought I would say that, but that actually is where we are. Klebanski said state officials should work to ensure people have access to medical care. But Andrew Dreyfus, who leads Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, said the state also needs to focus on costs. We also have to kind of think about what are we going to do about affordability, because I see a kind of looming crisis in Massachusetts. Dreyfus said he worries health care premiums are rising too quickly. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Harvard will have to pay all of its legal expenses for an anti-affirmative action lawsuit against the school. Harvard sued the Zurich American Insurance Company after the school failed to make a timely claim on its policy. A federal judge has now sided with the insurer. The university claimed that since the case was high profile, Zurich would know that Harvard's policy would have gone into effect despite the school filing its claim more than a year late.
This alert now for riders on the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. Service is suspended right now between Salem and Beverly because of a problem with a drawbridge. The MBTA says there will be major delays in both directions. The time is seven minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets, as anticipated, with works by choreographer William Forsythe, including a world premiere, now through November 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In sports, Celtics lost to the Cavaliers 114-113. to In overtime in Cleveland last night, the Seas will be back home tomorrow to play the Chicago Bulls. The Bruins go for their seventh straight win tonight when they visit the New York Rangers. Our weather forecast, sunshine today. Highs in the mid-60s. Tonight should be clear with lows in the 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow. Temperatures in the upper 60s. And sunny and warm weather stays with us through the week could get into the 70s this weekend. It's 49 degrees right now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Workday, committed to helping organizations adapt to change, using real-time data to uncover insights, stay decision-ready, and prepare for whatever's next. The finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. Since Roe v. Wade was overturned, abortion patients have been traveling to Michigan in record numbers. But access to abortion there is not a done deal. The issue is on the ballot in this year's election. In Michigan and in other states, old abortion laws are being revived and fought over in the courts. And voters are being asked to make their preferences known. But at Northland Family Planning, a clinic outside Detroit, the staff are focused on their work. Stanley Anderson is a security guard there. He keeps an eye on the protesters who gather out front every morning. I've had one altercation here. They know they don't want that. And you see they, they, they're on the sidewalk. They're not blocking the driveway. It's all good. Kate Wells of Michigan Radio spent several weeks at Northland talking with patients about what's at stake for them in the new fights over abortion. And a warning, some listeners will find the details of this story disturbing. To get to Northland Family Planning, Melissa drove overnight from Ohio. She got to her hotel around 3 a.m., and by 8 a.m., she was here, checking in at Northland. Her hair swept in a loose bun, her hands pulled inside the sleeves of her sweatshirt. She spent three months trying and failing to get an abortion in Ohio. But finally, she was here. She'd made it. I was relieved. after the struggle, so. Cause like I had to sit with it for weeks. Melissa and other patients here didn't want to use their full names while discussing intimate medical information. In the Northland waiting room, there are these inspirational quotes on the walls, like good women get abortions. Another one says, a lot of beautiful wise women have been here before and are here today. It's very different from the place Melissa went to a few months ago back in Ohio. Melissa thought that she was calling a women's health clinic that would refer her for an abortion, which the staff promised they could do. They were posing to be so pro-choice, and they're not. When she got there, a nurse gave her an ultrasound and said she was two weeks pregnant. But then... She wanted to pray for me. She gave me a Bible. She, like, it didn't even seem like it was religion until the very end. Melissa had ended up at a crisis pregnancy center. They're usually religious, and most are not licensed medical clinics. 
they try to convince people not to get abortions. I'm in this weird situation of, um, I'm going through a divorce, and I slept with somebody one time, and then I got pregnant, and they were like, are you sure that like you don't see a future with this guy? Like They were trying to talk me into having a baby that I couldn't have, and then they're trying to talk me into a relationship. <laughs> like, it's crazy. <laughs> Once Melissa realized this place was not going to help her, she tried to make her own appointment. At the time, abortions in Ohio were banned after six weeks, and every clinic near her had huge waiting lists. By the time Melissa got this appointment in Michigan, she was 14 weeks pregnant. And I just feel so much better because I have two kids. I have a 10-year-old and a 2-year-old, so it shouldn't be this hard. <laughs> Melissa's doctor for her procedure is Audrey Lance. At one point, Dr. Lance was dyeing the tips of her short brown hair purple. It helped nervous young patients relax when she walked in and they saw, oh, their abortion doctor was a woman with cool purple hair. Dr. Lance says ever since the Supreme Court decision. It has been a hard couple of months. Michigan has an old law on the books from 1931 banning abortion. And all summer, there was so much fighting in the courts about this law. Was it in effect or not? Could it be enforced? It seems like every week, sometimes every day, there was a new thing happening that was affecting how we could work or whether we could work and whether we could continue to provide care. There was even one day this summer where abortion was legal at breakfast, illegal by lunch, and then legal again by dinner. People care about this. People are pissed. They are really, really pissed. Ultimately, if abortion is going to stay legal in Michigan, it could come down to this election. Next week, voters will decide whether to pass Proposal 3 that would put the right to abortion and contraception in the Michigan Constitution. Dr. Lance says she is optimistic that Prop 3 will pass and nullify forever any threat from that 1931 ban. I am hopeful, but I think you just have to be. How could I come to work every day if I wasn't? At Northland, when I asked patients if they would talk with me, so many of them said, yeah, I want to talk. If people are going to be voting on this, I want them to know what this abortion means for me. This woman wanted to be called by her first initial, A. I don't think I could um, survive. If I knew that I had to have these babies with an abusive person, that's insanity to me. I feel like a prisoner. A has two little girls at home, and now she is pregnant with twins. She told her three-year-old daughter that she was not going to keep this pregnancy. My daughter was so cute. She said, okay, well, maybe another time, maybe later. <laughs> and I was like, yes, maybe later, because um, she doesn't know that in the end of the day I, I can't physically, um, financially, or mentally handle two more kids. A says she's not with her kid's father anymore, and she's even seeking a personal protection order. She says she's tried to get her tubes tied before. I've asked and begged to be, like, fixed or snipped or whatever it is that they have to do. They deny me, but then I end up on medication for birth control. Um, it's insanity, and I'm so fertile that it's like, literally, I just, <laughs> I have to stop having sex in order to not be pregnant. So 
abortion, even though this is my first one, I'm happy that it's here because I don't know what I would do right now. A is what you might imagine when you think about why somebody would need an abortion. Abusive relationship, money problems, emotional distress. And you see a lot of that in Northland, but you also see people who are in great relationships. They're financially stable and emotionally composed. Women like M, also her first initial. I want to go back to work and just kind of have something for myself other than just be a mother all day, every day. M is married. She's got three kids. The youngest is about to start school. And now she's pregnant again. And I wouldn't trade my kids for anything. I love them to death, but I just feel like that phase of my life is over. And it was an amazing phase, but I don't want to keep going back. I want to go forward. At Northland, medication abortions are done in the morning, and then in the afternoon, they do the surgical procedures. Like right when my daughter started to be difficult. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. This next patient is not one of the patients you heard before. She's asked that we not use her name. She's from Michigan. She already has one kid. She's having her abortion at about 11 weeks. Nearly all abortions in Michigan are before 13 weeks. And like many patients at Northland, she said I could record her procedure. We're going to hear some of that now. Right, so I am just going to get you set up on the table, and we're going to do that sedation medicine. Okay. I'm going to pull this out under your legs. Most patients are partially awake during the procedures. They get IV medication for pain and anxiety. The lights are dimmed. There's soothing music. It actually feels a lot like a childbirth. The medical gown, your bare legs and stirrups, and a person next to you saying, you can do this. Raise my hand and just keep breathing. That's Brandy. She's one of the staffers. Her job is to monitor vital signs, but it is also to hold the patient's hand and talk her through this. Whether it's a birth or an abortion, it is often women guiding other women. You're going to hear this machine turn on now. Okay, it makes a loud noise. Okay. Blow it out, blow it out, breathe through, breathe through, blow it out. Listen to me. Blow it out. If you hold your breath, it just makes it harder for you. Keep breathing. Just keep breathing, Brandy tells her, over and over. I can't, the patient says at one point, when the cramps get painful. Yes, you can, Brandy tells her, you're doing it. And then within just a couple of minutes, it's over. Take some deep breaths for me. Catch a breath. You did it. Thank you guys so much. You are welcome. Oh, I hope I didn't look too, I didn't look too bad. You did oh. great. You did great. <laughs> you did just fine. Yeah. You're okay. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you so Don't much. Don't you ever tell yourself what you can't do okay. here. Okay. So I'm going to bring the lights up and we're going to get your underwear on so we can get you over to recovery where you can relax, okay? Okay. One thing you hear a lot from patients is, I'm doing this because I have this picture for my life and the things that I want. One woman who asked that we not use her name says she wants to finish school. And she knows lots of women get abortions, but she says that does not make this feel easy. Like, almost feel like we feel filthy, we feel dirty. We feel like we have to sneak and do this. Some of us, yeah, put our lives at risk doing it. She says she didn't want to be trapped with the guy who got her pregnant. When she asked him to help pay for this abortion, he said the most he could do was split it. Guys, they're never held responsible for things like this, ever. 
It's always the woman. We always got to step up and take care of it. Whether we keep it or not, it's always put in our lap. At the end of the day, when all the patients have gone home, Dr. Lance wraps up paperwork, Brandy restocks the rooms, and Stanley does his final rounds. They don't know what will happen after the election. But they do know that tomorrow, more patients will be here seeking abortions. For NPR News, I'm Kate Wells in Sterling Heights, Michigan. This story comes from NPR's partnership with Michigan Radio and Kaiser Health News. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, some U.S. high schools have launched programs to help students earn their commercial driver's licenses to try to recruit more truck drivers. It's 20 minutes past 8. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston University Academy, where kind and curious high school students who love to learn thrive. Virtual open house November 30th, buacademy.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. Today on Radio Boston. Brace yourself. It's going to cost more this winter to heat your home. And if you're worried about how you're going to pay for it, you're not alone. We take a look at why prices are going up and what you can do to keep from breaking the bank while you stay warm. That's Radio Boston today at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. In our weather forecast, sunshine today, highs in the 60s, clear tonight with lows in the 40s, and tomorrow it should be mostly sunny. Temperatures in the upper 60s. It's 49 degrees in Boston. This note now, the official Boston Christmas tree will come from an appropriately named place this year, Christmas Island. That's a small community on Cape Breton Island in Nova Scotia. The Canadian province sends Boston a tree every year as a thank you for the city's help after a devastating explosion in Halifax in 1917. The 45-foot white spruce will be cut down in a few weeks and it will be lit on Boston Common on December 2nd. The time is 22 minutes past 8. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Focus Features presenting Armageddon Time, starring Anne Hathaway, Jeremy Strong, and Anthony Hopkins, one family's pursuit of the American dream. From writer-director James Gray, everywhere Friday. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. And from the NPR Wine Club, bringing wines from around the world to members with NPR-inspired bottles like Weekend Edition Cabernet. Available to adults 21 or older. More at nprwineclub.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The trucking industry says it can't find enough drivers and the problem is getting worse. One possible solution is younger drivers. The government has embraced this idea and so are some high schools. NPR's Andrea Shue visited one school in Western Maryland. 
Just outside the shop room at Williamsport High School, some 17-year-olds have piled into the cab of a white Volvo truck. Battery's at 13, so that battery's good. They're doing what's called a pre-trip inspection, checking out the truck front to back, under the hood, noting any problems, especially with things like brakes. Brakes off. They'll pump it down. This introduction to trucking course is taught at the local community college. This fall, for the first time, it's also being offered at the high school. Eric Young is the teacher. How do you drive a truck? What are the credentials you have to have to pass the permit test? So our goal here is that our students are ready to, on their 18th birthday, sit for their permit test at the DMV. And after that, it's just one more class at the community college, and then they can obtain their commercial driver licenses. Tucker Bubaz can already imagine himself driving trucks for a living. He grew up on a farm around tractors and recently had a part-time job at a collision center. I turned 18 in January, so... My parents are excited because they know I like trucks and driving. His friend Joshua Hewitt meets a lot of truckers at his part-time job at a gas station. They are some pretty awesome vehicles. They haul a lot of weight. The idea for this class started with assistant principal Adam Perry. He wanted to figure out what to do with students who weren't motivated by school or by the vocational programs on offer. A trucker friend had told Perry about what he was hearing on the road. There was going to be 50-some thousand jobs just in this area alone in the next five to ten years, and you can see that happening. Williamsport is a transportation hub just minutes away from West Virginia and Pennsylvania. It sits along two interstates. But there's a reason trucking hasn't traditionally been taught in high school. Typically, you're, you're not able to drive very far until you hit a certain age. Under federal law, you have to be 21 to drive across state lines, which Joshua Hewitt will tell you is where the money's at. I mean, you can make money in state, but over state, like going from west coast to east coast, that's where you make the most money. But now the federal government is piloting an apprentice program that will allow 18 to 20 year olds to cross state lines. It's just getting started. One of the companies approved to hire drivers is Dot Foods. It has a distribution center minutes away from the high school. Dave Hess is the transportation director. We're not going to put anybody on the road, can't handle the equipment and be safe. But Hess says he has no qualms about putting an 18 to 20 year old on an interstate route, provided they show they're capable. His point, it's not so much about age. You got immature 45-year-old people. You know, it, it's really on the person, their skills, their understanding of the DOT laws. Of course, safety advocates have raised red flags. Teenagers are easily distracted. They have higher crash rates. But 18 to 20-year-olds are already allowed to drive within state lines. And as part of the pilot, apprentice drivers must complete hundreds of hours on the road with an experienced driver next to them. Still, the idea of a teenager behind the wheel of a tractor trailer going 70 miles an hour is scary. The dangers are something the teenagers at Williamsport High talk about often with their teacher. 80,000 pound vehicle, that could kill anybody. You know. So it's a huge responsibility. Yeah. And other drivers on the road, that's what I'm a little nervous about because you can be the best driver there is, but there's always some bad driver that could mess something up. For now, it's about making mistakes in a safe environment navigating intersections in virtual reality. Uh, the pole on the one I always hit. <laughs> Long story short, not easy. That's why they'll be back at it tomorrow. Andrea Shu, NPR News, Williamsport, Maryland. If you can just make it to this weekend, you get an extra hour of sleep. Daylight saving time ends and the clocks go back. For some people working bad hours, this is a relief. For others, it's an adjustment. And of course, for all of us, sunset abruptly comes one hour sooner. 
Florida Senator Marco Rubio is ready to be done with that early sunset. His Sunshine Protection Act passed the Senate in March. We don't have to keep doing this stupidity anymore. And uh, why we would enshrine this in our laws and keep it for so long is beyond me. But hopefully this is the year that this gets done. And pardon the pun, but this is an idea whose time has come. If the bill becomes law, we would stay on daylight saving time after switching back to it next spring. Rubio says that should lead to fewer accidents during the evening rush hour, which will take place more often in daylight. It also gives kids longer to play outside before dark. But the bill has yet to pass the House, which is hearing from scientists with a different view. Dr. Karen Johnson is a neurologist and director of the sleep medicine program at Bay State Health in Springfield, Massachusetts. So a lot of the arguments are using short-term data of what happens around the time of clock change, but are not what happens when you go permanently to one time or the other. Suppose you look past those disorienting first days after the time switch. Researchers looked at the health effects of people who live on daylight saving time longer term. We also see with that hour later sunrise and sunsets about 9% more cancers in men and 12% more cancers in women. Um, We see increased obesity rates um, about 10 to even up to 30% higher when you have those later sunrises and sunsets. So it affects a lot of different special cardiovascular and other medical conditions. It goes like this. When your circadian rhythm isn't aligned with sunlight, it affects hormones connected with good health. So Dr. Johnson agrees with Senator Ruby that switching back and forth is not ideal, but does offer the opposite solution. So I'd like to see permanent standard time because it is best aligned with our body's rhythm. And that just makes life a little easier. When we're aligned with our rhythms, we can sleep easier, we can think easier, we can wake up easier, and all those things lead to better health. And there's one more thing. She says daylight time is especially hard on many lower income workers, the people who are up early to pick up the trash, open the store, start a long commute or make the donuts. If we go to permanent daylight savings time, we're going to increase structural disparities. And this is not (laughs) what we want to do. So we really want to go to permanent standard time for the workers to make people's lives a little bit easier. At least for now, this discussion is hypothetical. As Congress debates, we have two more days on daylight time and then the extra hour Sunday morning. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the latest on the increasing tensions between North and South Korea. It's 830 We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Trust, a private bank offering a full suite of custom financial solutions tailored to its clients. Their team provides private banking, wealth management, and commercial and innovation banking designed to power any ambition. You can visit their offices or connect online at cambridgetrust.com slash waytowealth. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Pakistan's former Prime Minister Imran Khan was wounded today when his protest convoy came under attack in the east of the country. His aides say Khan was shot in the foot while riding in a truck as he was leading supporters toward Islamabad to demand early elections. Japan ordered evacuations in some areas and temporarily halted trains today after North Korea fired three more missiles into the sea. NPR's Anthony Kuhn says one of them involved an intercontinental ballistic missile. 
Japan thought that the ICBM was going to fly over its main island, so it issued warnings for people to seek cover in three prefectures. The missile did not fly over the island. Uh, yesterday, it launched 23 missiles, which appear all to be short-range ballistic missiles. And last month, North Korea uh, rehearsed using these missiles to hit U.S. and South Korean military targets with tactical nuclear weapons. These latest launches by Pyongyang came a day after North Korea fired nearly two dozen missiles into the sea. Analysts believe North Korea is preparing a nuclear test. President Biden is denouncing political violence and candidates who deny the results of the 2020 election as people continue voting in the congressional midterm elections. Speaking last night in Washington, Biden said those actions are corrosive to democracy. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. State lawmakers appear to have a deal to approve a $3.7 billion economic development package today and get it to Governor Baker. Leaders from the House and Senate reached the deal yesterday. It's been in limbo since July. The agreement includes relief for energy costs and provides assistance for the MBTA. It does not include the tax cuts that were part of the original proposal. The Worcester Public School District is shifting gears this year, if you will. It has a new in-house bus transportation system. As WBUR's Carrie Young reports, the move came after years of frustration with a private bus company. This was a huge project for Worcester. The district had to buy about 165 new buses at a cost of $16.5 million. It also hired new drivers and found space for the new fleet. District leaders say running their own buses is saving about $3.5 million in transportation costs this year, which helped them give drivers a raise. Tenth grade student Simon Restrepo adds there are other benefits, too. I've only been late one time this whole school year. It's been a very big improvement since years prior, and I really, really like it. Worcester joins a small group of districts that took school bus service in-house in recent years. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Authorities are looking for information about a man who may be linked to the murder of the so-called Lady of the Dunes. The woman found dead in Provincetown in the 1970s was identified just this week as Ruth Marie Terry. Investigators believe she married a man named Guy Rockwell Muldaven just months before her death. Muldaven died 20 years ago, but state police are asking anyone with information to contact them. The time is 8.34. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. In sports, Celtics lost to the Cavaliers 114-113 to in overtime in Cleveland last night. The Seas are off tonight. They'll host the Chicago Bulls tomorrow. The Bruins are on the road tonight. They'll skate with the New York Rangers. In our forecast, sunshine today, highs in the mid-60s. Tonight should be clear with lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, highs in the upper 60s, and sunshine right through Monday with temperatures all three weekend days and Monday in the 70s. It is 49 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business works to help simplify the supplies buying process. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. And from Fidelity Wealth Management, 
working to help investors keep more of what they earn with tax-efficient strategies. At fidelity.com wealth, investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, member NYSE. And from the Lemelson Foundation. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. Good morning. North Korea conducted three ballistic missile tests today, including a suspected intercontinental ballistic missile. That follows 23 missiles yesterday, which is the most the North has ever launched in one day. This time, the show of aggression triggered evacuation warnings in two countries, South Korea and Japan. NPR's Anthony Kuhn joins us now from Seoul. Anthony, good morning. Good morning. Can you explain more about the weapons North Korea launched over the last couple of days and their significance? Yes. Today's tests included that suspected ICBM and also two short-range missiles. Japan thought that the ICBM was going to fly over its main island, so it issued warnings for people to seek cover in three prefectures. The missile did not fly over the island. Uh, Yesterday, it launched 23 missiles, which appear all to be short-range ballistic missiles. And last month, North Korea rehearsed using these missiles to hit U.S. and South Korean military targets with tactical nuclear weapons. I spoke to Kim Jong-dae about this. He is a former South Korean defense official and a visiting professor at Yonsei University. Let's hear him speak. So he says, North Korea staged a very threatening provocation at a magnitude we've never seen before. They launched missiles from all around the country, east, west, south, north. This seems intended to negate our strategy of striking the source of the attack. So basically he's saying that North Korea's two days of missile launches have sent a lot of signals about what North Korea can do militarily. And what is North Korea saying about why it's doing this now? Well, it's portraying its missile launches as insurance against attacks, including nuclear attacks by the U.S. and South Korea. It points to U.S. and South Korean large-scale joint air force exercises this week involving some 240 planes. Last week, it pointed to 12 days of joint large-scale military field exercises. It's also unhappy that the U.S., South Korea, and Japan are stepping up trilateral cooperation against it and that the U.S. is deploying aircraft carriers and nuclear power subs to the region. And it especially doesn't like that South Korea openly talks about decapitation strikes against the North's leadership. But even without all these pretexts, North Korea would be testing weapons anyway. They've begun a five-year plan to beef up their nuclear arsenal with the aim of making their military deterrent more credible and eventually extracting concessions from the U.S. And so it's likely to be conducting lots of nuclear and missile tests for years to come, whatever Seoul and Washington do. Right. And as you alluded to, North Korea does this. I mean, they, they've conducted tests for many years. Does this feel different, like an actual military conflict between North Korea and one of its neighbors is closer? In some ways. I mean, the missiles flew over the de facto maritime border for the first time, and they appeared to be headed for populated areas. And South Korea considers that tantamount to a violation of its territory. Of course, the U.S. and South Korea are still expecting an even bigger provocation, which is North Korea's seventh test detonation of an atomic bomb. And they could get extra political impact if they stage that around the time of U.S. midterm elections. Lastly, Anthony, the U.S. is now saying that North Korea is covertly transferring artillery shells to Russia to use in the war in Ukraine. What's going on? North Korea has denied giving Russia this ammo, but the point is that the two Koreas are technically still at war, and they both have large stockpiles of weapons. 
Ukraine has said it wants South Korean weapons, and Russia could sure use North Korean ammo. So far, Seoul has limited itself to arming Ukraine's neighbor Poland, but it's a really interesting illustration of how these two conflicts in Europe and Asia are actually connected through the history of the Cold War and its aftermath. NPR's Anthony Kuhn reporting from Seoul. Thanks so much. Thank you. Governments have tried two different ways to address climate change. One is to prevent more of it by emitting less carbon. The other is to adapt so we can survive the changes already underway. A United Nations report examined the world's adaptation so far and found we're doing a terrible job. The study was released days before world leaders gather for a climate conference in Egypt. Michael Copley is with NPR's Climate Desk and he's covering this. Good morning. Morning, Steve. What kinds of adaptations are we talking about here? We're talking about doing things to help people and the environment cope with more extreme floods and storms and heat waves. So that might look like planting mangroves, to almost act like barrier islands in coastal areas to Hmm. take some of the energy out of storms. It means building infrastructure like roads and bridges and train lines to be able to stand more extreme weather. It means planting crops that are more tolerant of worsening drought. And it means making sure that communities have early warning systems so that people can get out when emergencies happen. I can imagine things from recent times that have been done in the United States, like building houses higher up in New Orleans after the flooding of Katrina or a town in Florida that survived the recent hurricane in better shape because the utility wires were underground and were going to be blown away by wind. These all sound pretty reasonable, but how much is being done compared to the need? The U.N. says not nearly enough. Some of the worst impacts we're seeing so far from climate change are hitting developing countries. Think of the floods this summer in Pakistan. They caused billions of dollars in damage and at least 15 hundred people died. Now, Pakistan, like a lot of developing countries, has played a pretty minor role in generating the emissions that are causing global warming. Most of that pollution has come from wealthy countries like the United States. So in 2020, industrialized countries provided developing nations with $29 billion for climate adaptation. But according to the UN, they'll need up to 10 times more money than that every year by the end of the decade. And the numbers are going to keep going up as temperatures rise. I was just discussing this in the car with one of my kids because it came up in their school. There's this divergence of interests. You have industrialized countries that have emitted a lot of carbon and may have money to pay for some of the damages. But you have these developing countries, which are just different countries. Do the developed nations fully see it in their interest to pay for what needs to be done? You know, I think that they acknowledge that it is in their interest, but they've been talking about this for years. And I think that's a big source of frustration in the developing countries. Look, a a decade ago, developed countries pledged $100 billion a year to help developing countries cut emissions and adapt to the risk that we're seeing. That promise hasn't been kept. But when you talk to analysts, what they say is $100 billion is just a drop in the bucket. And what's really challenging at a moment when money is in short supply for developing countries is the fact that the world needs to do two things at once. It needs to adapt to the risk that we're seeing, mm-hmm. and it needs to cut emissions, what's known as climate mitigation. Here's Mafalda Duarte, the CEO of Climate Investment Funds, who works with development banks on these issues. You know, we cannot stop putting emphasis on mitigation because otherwise the adaptation costs will just skyrocket, and they will basically be very difficult to meet. I would imagine that's going to be one of the main questions of this climate conference. Where's the money and who's going to pay it? Listen, I think money generally is going to be at the top of the agenda. Uh, Developed countries are under a lot of pressure to make good on the financial commitments they made. Coming out of last year's conference, they were being urged to at least double climate adaptation financing in the next few years for developing countries. The issue right now is countries all over the world are dealing with inflation and they're dealing with an energy crisis from the war in Ukraine. And it's not clear right now whether that turmoil is going to stand in the way of more money flowing 
to these poor countries that are most vulnerable to climate change. Michael Copley, thanks so much. Thanks, Steve. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, new district voting maps in some key battleground states and how they might affect the midterm elections. Our weather forecast, sunny today. Highs in the mid-60s. Tonight should be clear with lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny. Temperatures into the upper 60s and sunshine through the weekend with highs in the 70s. It is 50 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the School of the Museum of Fine Arts at Tufts University, hosting its annual in-person art sale, November 4th through the 6th. More at smfa.tufts.edu. In business news, Massachusetts will not renegotiate contracts that the state signed earlier this year to purchase electricity from the developer of an offshore wind project. Last month, Commonwealth Wind said because of supply shortages and rising costs, it would not be able to move forward under the terms of the current contract. Yesterday, Governor Charlie Baker said it's wrong for the company to try to renegotiate under the premise that those higher costs will persist. While there may be some choppy water at the moment with respect to interest rates and supply chains. I think it's premature for people to think that where we sit now is necessarily representative of where things are going to be over time. Commonwealth Wind wants state regulators to pause their review of the contract so the company can see if it qualifies for additional federal tax incentives. The city of Boston says a new development will bring affordable housing to Nubian Square. The project will include 70 income-restricted units with options to rent or own. The development will also include a shared artist workspace. The city has not said when the project will be complete. The time is 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H, the Handel and Haydn Society, with Handel's Messiah and its Hallelujah Chorus, November 25th through 27th at Symphony Hall, handelandhaydn.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. The Republican Party controls almost two-thirds of state legislatures in this country. That is due in part to a successful GOP strategy of redistricting launched years ago. But in this midterm election, some new maps in some battleground states may change the odds of who's in power. Here's NPR's Laura Benchoff. Johanny Sepedafreitas has a lot on her plate. She owns a restaurant, serves on her local city council. And I'm running to become the next state representative of the 129th district. The 129th Pennsylvania House District is about 60 miles northwest of Philadelphia. It includes part of Reading, a small city that is majority Democrat and Latino. But it also covers some of the surrounding county, which is whiter and more Republican. Sepeda Freitas grew up between the U.S. and the Dominican Republic. She says she went into politics to help her community. Being in a city that's predominantly Latino, where a lot of people speak more Spanish than English, for years we weren't really represented or served. When Pennsylvania adopted a new legislative map, it redrew the lines around the 129th. 
That's one major reason Sepa de Freitas decided to run. It did a complete shift, allowing the area to be 52% Democrats. Every 10 years, states redraw district lines based on the new census numbers. Sam Wong, director of the Gerrymandering Project at Princeton University, says in most states, the party in power runs the redistricting process. It's this endless feedback where the state legislature plays a hand in drawing its own lines, runs for office in those lines, and then can stay in office. Both parties do this, but there is a growing backlash against such partisan gerrymandering. In Pennsylvania, the most recent mapmaking commission was chaired by an outside expert. Democrats outnumber Republicans in the Commonwealth, but the GOP has run the state legislature for a decade. The new map still favors Republicans, but less heavily than before, according to Wong. He says other states decided to change their mapmaking practice entirely. Some states have stepped up and through citizen initiative reformed their process, and that's the case in places like Michigan and Virginia. That makes Democrats hopeful. Jessica Post is president of the Democratic Legislative Campaign Committee. We'll see the first fair state Senate map in about 40 years in Michigan this election cycle. And so that gives us a shot to flip the Michigan State Senate. But that's ambitious during a midterm year when Republicans would normally be expected to make gains. There's a big difference between flipping chambers and flipping seats. Adam Kincaid is with the National Republican Redistricting Trust. While Democrats are gunning to take control of chambers in Pennsylvania and Michigan, he's not overly worried. Nationally, the climate's good for the GOP. You know, at the same time, the commissions in a few states didn't do Republicans any favors. Kincaid says new maps could also cause Democrats to lose seats in their strongholds. For example, in the New York State Senate, a judge there threw out political maps as unfairly biased towards Democrats. Drawing district lines is so contentious because these maps create a kind of political destiny. For example, let's go back to that Pennsylvania race we heard about at the top. I never heard back from the Republican candidate, but Democrat Johanny Cepeda Freitas is feeling good about her odds because of the new map. This will be the first time when I win that it'll be a Democratic seat. When I win. It's not if well, I, I have to speak it's when I win. I have to speak it into existence, right? It helps that the district now leans in her favor. Laura Benshoff, NPR News, Philadelphia. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rachel Martin. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us at noon today for Here and Now. Jane Clayson is with us right now to tell us what's coming up on today's program. Good morning. Good nice morning, to see you. Deb. Nice to see you. Well, less than a week before Election Day, we're looking at President Biden's speech last night. He's sending a stark warning that the future of our nation's democracy could rest on next week's midterm elections. So we have all kinds of reaction to that. There's a, an unknown loophole in the 13th Amendment in this country that allows incarcerated citizens to be compelled to work for little mm-hmm. or no pay. Mm-hmm. That issue is on the ballot in five states next week. We'll look at the national implications. Really interesting. We'll uh, be checking uh, around the world today, Deb. We'll get the latest from Ukraine, inc- including the news that the U.S. is accusing North Korea of sending munitions to Russia. We'll look at what Israeli elections uh, could mean for Palestinians. we got the ceasefire in Ethiopia, of course, after two years. A lot of international news today. And we'll hear the inspiring story of a timeless Maverick, a a woman journalist named 
Elsie Robinson. You may never have heard that name, but millions read her columns for decades. We'll get her inspiring story today at noon. All right, Jane, thanks so much. You're welcome. It's here and now, noon today, here on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by JBS Home Inspections with condo common area consultations as well as home inspections for buyers and sellers throughout greater Boston, jbsinspections.com, and Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes, cambridgeculinary.com. What are the policy priorities for Black men voting this year? And are candidates listening to them? Black men have a voice and, you know, have a perspective. You have to acknowledge where I am as a Black person first. I'm Juana Summers. We'll hear from voters and a pollster. This afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Today from 4 to 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. In our weather forecast, sunshine today, temperatures in the mid-60s. Tonight should be clear with lows in the 40s. Mostly sunny tomorrow, temperatures in the upper 60s and sunshine through the weekend with highs in the 70s. 49 degrees right now in Boston at 8 minutes before 8 o'clock. The World Cup starts this month. We'll look at the price tag, which is bigger than the national GDP of its host country. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive Insurance. Customers can simplify their insurance needs and protect what's important by bundling home and auto. Learn more about bundling at Progressive.com. And by Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. FisherInvestments.com. Investments and securities involve the risk of loss. I'm David Brancaccio. First, you feel it yesterday afternoon? Your credit card's getting somehow heavier. That was the Federal Reserve raising interest rates to try to stamp out inflation. And Fed Chair Jerome Powell sternly warned there is more to come. Marketplace's Nancy Marshall-Genzer was at Powell's briefing and joins us now. Hello there. Hey, David. Stock indexes closed down yesterday, but toward the beginning of that briefing, I saw prices rose for a time. What was going on? Yeah, in a statement after the meeting, the Fed said it realizes it takes some time for higher interest rates to affect the economy, appearing to indicate it was open to pausing the rate hikes to evaluate how they're working their way through the economy. But then Chair Powell made it clear that it's very premature to think about pausing. And down went stocks. So did Powell give any sense of when the Fed might let up? He said more moderate rate hikes are coming, maybe as soon as December. I asked Powell if there was still a path to a soft landing where the Fed raises rates just enough to cool off the economy without sending us into a recession. I think to the extent rates have to go higher and stay higher for longer, it becomes harder to uh, to see the path. It's, it's narrowed. I would say the path has narrowed over the course of the last year, really. Powell also must be worried about overdoing it to the point of recession. Yeah, he says the greater risk is backing off interest rate hikes too soon and letting inflation get entrenched because then it's a lot harder to snuff out. Nancy, thank you. Markets S&P futures are down nine-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ futures are down 1.1 percent. The 10-year interest rate, as you would expect, up 4.2 percent now. 
Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Fortra, a software company dedicated to building a stronger, simpler future for cybersecurity and IT teams around the world with solutions purpose-built to protect your peace of mind. Learn more at fortra.com. And by Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. Learn more at amazonbusiness.com. The World Cup in Qatar opens in about two and a half weeks to a projected audience of 5 billion people, according to the sports ruling body, FIFA. This month for our Econ Extra Credit series, we're watching the documentary film The Workers' Cup, which explores the lives of some of the millions of migrant workers who built the stadiums and other infrastructure that make the games possible. Human rights organizations are pushing a campaign to get more workers' compensation for injuries and other abuses, including illegal recruitment fees many workers had to pay, and I've been writing on that. Well, today, let's talk return on investment amid estimates that Qatar, roughly the size of Connecticut, spent more than $200 billion on these games. Victor Matheson is a professor of economics at the College of the Holy Cross. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, Qatar, it's not going to make a formal profit, dollars in versus dollars out on this thing, will it? It certainly won't make a formal profit. It won't make an informal one either. We're talking about costs in the hundreds of billions of dollars and benefits, at least in the short run, in the tens of billions at most. You probably teach this to your students, right? I mean, there's dollars, but there's also something called goodwill that is worth something. No, so that is. And hosts of big mega events like the Olympics and the World Cup, if you're putting any sort of significant money into infrastructure like uh, Qatar obviously is doing, there's just no way you can make that back on ticket sales, on media rights, on the amount of money you make from tourists coming to visit your country. So obviously you're hoping for some sort of long run benefits, some sort of legacy. And often that is an improvement in your reputation, either as a tourist destination or as a world player in some ways. And there's a ghost that haunts all these big tournaments, right? Montreal, 1976 Olympics. Right. So they uh, they didn't end up paying uh, off the last of their debts from that Olympics for about 30 years on the big stadium they built for that. Uh, They called it the Big O, in part because it was shaped like an O, in part because they owed money for it for 30 years. But there's also the case in point of a later Olympics, 1984, Los Angeles. They used a lot of existing infrastructure and they ended up making a little money. Not a lot, but a little. Yeah, so the economics of the uh, Los Angeles Olympics are fascinating. The reason they ended up making a bunch of money is because When it came time to look for bidders for the 1984 Olympics, they were the only bidder left. And lo and behold, when you don't gold plate everything and you don't build everything brand new and you have a lot of infrastructure in place, it turns out you can actually run one of these things pretty well. The World Cup that's going to be in the United States uh, in the next four years, that's going to likely be a profitable event because the United States is loaded with great sports and tourism infrastructure. Back to Qatar, it hopes to generate something through goodwill. It'll seem like more of a global player, perhaps after this, but there is a potential downside for its image. For instance, human rights groups have been focused on the conditions under which the migrants who came to Qatar to help build this infrastructure, the conditions under which they worked, and their other human rights issues, those can also be in focus when the world's media is paying such close attention. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. Of course, uh, the whole hope here is that you want to focus the attention of the world on your city and or your country. And when you're a hidden gem, a place like Barcelona that has wonderful tourist uh, options that really were not as well known back when they hosted the Summer Olympics in the 90s, uh, then letting people know about your country is an unambiguously good thing. On the other hand, uh, the more people learn about the fact that Qatar is a very conservative country, very oppressive in many ways, uh, the labor rights issues related to immigration and the immigrants that built the stadiums and the rest of the infrastructure. Here's a case where maybe knowing more about the country isn't helpful for that country's image. Victor Matheson, professor of economics at the College of the Holy Cross. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. One documentary a month on Marketplace Topics. The Workers' Cup is the film this month. Follow along with our Econ Extra Credit newsletter. You can sign up free, marketplace.org slash newsletters. I'm David Brancaccio. You're listening to the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. This is 90.9 WBUR. A weather forecast is calling for sunshine today. Highs in the 60s. Tonight clear, lows in the 40s. Sunny tomorrow, temperatures again in the 60s. And looks like sunshine with us through Monday. And temperatures should get into the 70s. 50 degrees right now in Boston. The BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Ballets as anticipated. With works by choreographer William Forsythe including a world premiere, now through November 13th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. Press 1. Press 2. Try to find a human, but you can't. Welcome to the nightmare that is customer service. You feel like you're shouting into a void. You're always talking to the wrong person. It feels like the organization has made it excessively difficult to talk to you, as if they don't want to hear from you. Why is customer service so bad? That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. I'm Radio Boston executive producer Titus Faladun. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.